We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello, you are listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from the small island of Tasmania to all around Australia. But our show is proudly recorded in Lutruita, Tasmania at Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. So head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on what they're up to. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman. I'm joined by my awesome co-host, Mibu Fisher. And I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording. Today we are in um, Lutruita, so I acknowledge the Palawa people and the traditional owners of the land on which you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So today we're going to be talking about something that I'm really unfamiliar with, which is eDNA, I didn't even know that was a thing, um, and fisheries with our expert guest, Dr. Maddie Green from CSIRO. Cool, so I think it's going to be a really interesting chat, Mibu. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about our guest and topic for today? Yeah, so today um, the topic is on fisheries and eDNA and um, commercial fisheries appears to be in the spotlight again thanks to a widely watched documentary. Um, So it will be great to chat with an expert in the field about what research they are working on to address the monitoring and surveillance issues that surround commercial fisheries. Yeah, that sounds really relevant. I suppose most of us would be familiar with fisheries, whether or not we eat seafood or see them or think about the the landscape. So Maddie Green's a postdoc with CS and a forensic fisheries ecologist, which I feel like every time I hear something before ecologist, I'm like, how is that a thing? But it's very, very cool. So I think all of our listeners are going to be thrilled um, to hear more about how Maddie is using molecular and forensic techniques to investigate global fishing activity in conjunction with other biological and socioeconomic information. So sounds like you're a really awesome detective, Maddie. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing from this. Um, yeah, so welcome, welcome. It's great to have you, you with us. Thanks for having me. Very welcome. So you work for CSIRO yes. in the Fisheries Monitoring and Control Surveillance Team, which to me sounds like a unit that belongs in the FBI, <laughs> um, really. <laughs> like forensics, I just go straight to that type of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, so for those of us who aren't familiar with fisheries, mm-hmm. can we first just have a brief chat about what a fishery is and the various types of fisheries or how they're categorised? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So... Um, Fisheries, and I work in the wild fisheries space, so that's basically where we take uh, animals out of the ocean uh, and then use them to usually eat them uh, most of the time. So there's different kinds of fisheries you can get. You can have quite large commercial uh, fisheries and they can operate with big vessels. They can fish in all different ways with nets or with hooks. Um, And then you can also have a kind of recreational setting, so think about Um, everyday users, just general public using um, the waterway and catching fish for dinner or just as a sport as well. Um, And then we have um, a third kind of uh, fishery, I guess, which we call artisanal fishery. So that is um, often Indigenous and First Nations people or it's um, local people in the area who are using the resource, but it's not necessarily managed under commercial laws, um, but it's also not necessarily under recreational laws as well. So it's pretty interesting 
interesting space, that artisanal one, um, when we look at the global space too because trying to measure artisanal fisheries is pretty interesting. I mean, trying to measure commercial fisheries that are well-managed is also <laughs> a pretty tricky one too. So, yeah. so is that like a new and emerging space, that um, like cultural use of fisheries? or No, that's been – I mean, that's the earliest type of fishery, yeah. I would say. And if we think about Indigenous Australians, you know, they were using fish traps, which I think is some of the oldest types of fish-catching mm. um techniques in in you know around the world so I would say that's the oldest type of fishing and we've kind of with the industrial revolution and with ships getting bigger and smarter we've turned that into a commercial sector which is quite large from my background I always want to make sure that local people and people who have lived off the land for all their life and their generations deserve to do that still Mm -hmm. you know and so where I think we should be thinking about say, you know, management or making sure that we're um, making resources healthy is in that commercial side where we're catching a lot to make sure that the people um, who have always lived off the land can continue to do so. Yeah, that's great. So that the communities aren't being forced out essentially by commercial that's usually shipping that product away as well, which is a really good point and good to hear. Are you able to explain to us the main components of fisheries management? Yeah, yeah, oof. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's a big question, break right? it down. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so in a fisheries, um, you have a couple of ways to think about the system itself. So you can think about it as an ecosystem-based management where you're going to look at multiple different species that exist. You might be targeting multiple different kinds of species. And opposite to this is the northern prawn trawl fishery that focuses only on prawns and fishes only prawns right and then it has bycatch that it has to get rid of or make sure that it doesn't catch but mainly when we do stock assessments and when they're um and what I mean by stock assessment is how big is the population of prawns and how many prawns can you catch to make sure there'll be prawns next year and years to come um that's a very single species focused approach so then you also have um, multi-species management, but that is less common because it is far more complicated. So um, the way that we uh, started fisheries management was a single species approach, but we always knew that fisheries were going to have an impact on multiple species, but within a model and within how we crunch the numbers to work out our abundances, it becomes very complicated when you add in the population or the, the ecological dynamics of multiple species changing in abundances and then how we get those abundances is that can be multiple different kinds of information that feed into what we call a stock assessment so you can have actual people out on a boat you know counting um, and tagging so doing sort of um fisheries independent survey so a scientist might go out and um, try and catch and fish in the area where that Um, boat is fishing but um, do a transect almost and say okay on this long line we caught this many sharks this many snapper you know so therefore if we round that up based on our effort of how much we fished then we think there's about 10,000 snapper in this area so that can be put into a stock assessment and then things like um, genetic diversity so understanding um, how diverse the population is and um, whether you can 
sort of get an effective population size, which is the number of uh, breeders um, in a population that can feed into a stock assessment to help you work out how many there are. And then you can also look at previous catch records. So, it, and often in fisheries setting, if you instantly go from catching or over many years if you catch a lot and then you are using the same amount of effort but you're catching less and less and less but you're fishing just as hard that will often tell you that there's a decline in the population and something needs to be done and I think you know the great case studies in Newfoundland in Canada where they didn't listen to that and they kept fishing and kept fishing and they fished the cod to extent um, to extinction basically and so we know that you know, it's very important every year or every few years to have a look at the stock and have a look at the effort of fishing and make sure that um, the numbers are lining up so that you're not getting that decline because that is an indication that you're in trouble. How do you maintain something like scientific integrity or regulator independence mm-hmm. in something like that where there would, you know, have to be a tension between commercial interests and environmental interests? Yeah. Um, like how is that navigated or is it just that the environmental interests are inherently commercial as well because you can't fish if there's yeah. no fish? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's often, fishermen are often portrayed as the bad guys and all gals and they're really not. Like mm. they care just as much because it's their livelihood. They are often helping that process then those stock assessments. They're the people coming to us with the data mm-hmm. um, and scientists do independent work as well Um, and there's obviously competing interests between different uh, fisher people but still their their overall um, focus is to make sure they have a healthy stock that's great thanks so much maddie you're listening to that's what i call science and if you're really keen to hear more about the ins and outs of how um, fisheries are managed stay with us we'll be talking to maddie about what her team does in the space You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking eDNA and fisheries. My name is Mibu Fisher, and I'm joined by Dr. Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Dr. Maddie Green from CSIRO. So before the break, Maddie, we were just hearing about um, the basics of fisheries management, and you gave a really great summary of that. Um, But in regards to your team and the work that you do in monitoring and surveillance, how does that fit into that? system. I guess I'll have to do a bit of explaining on the other side of it. So you have stock assessments and fisheries management where the rules are set, um, but then you need to understand whether people are going to follow those rules. And that's really where our team comes into it. So there's all sorts of reasons why people break the rules. That could be because uh, for financial incentive, it could be because they don't know the rules. Um, it could be for their livelihood and it's the only choice they have. So there's all sorts of reasons to understand why people do Um, what they do and I guess our team applies those questions in the fisheries management sense so um, we have a a, you know socio-ecologist who looks at behavioral shifts so can you nudge people into making better decisions without enforcing the rule right part of our team also work on uh, things called VMS which is tracking of ships so you can kind of understand what a ship is doing based on where it's moving 
and how fast it's moving and whether it's near another ship and whether it returns to the same place. So in a way, they kind of look at this VMS data and movement data to track what a ship has done. So you feed in this VMS and it goes, okay, the computer believes that the boat has been trawling during this time or it has been you know, hauling during this time or loading. So anyway, so you can find all these different ways of, um, of working out what people have done and then therefore whether they've done the right thing. Um, and I guess my side of it is really I lead the forensic part of our team and that sounds kind of interesting. <laughs> From my background, what I want to understand is what have people caught and have people caught what they said they did? And so that's my main question I want to help answer because then if we go back to fisheries management, if we know what they've caught, then that gets fed into those stock assessments to make sure that we're catching the right number of what we say we're catching and we're not seeing declines. So uh, my goal, and I'm sort of halfway through the project at the moment, but I'm basically scooping water out of these really big brine tanks, which are kind of like big refrigerators full of water on the boat. Um, and they often put fish into this cold, icy brine. It's like a salty water. Um, and that will keep them fresh until they get to land. And that's kind of how we get our fresh seafood so fresh, even though it might have been out on a boat for a little while. Um, and so my goal is to scoop some water out of there and then I'm going to extract the trace DNA that's kind of fallen off the animals and is floating in the water. And then I'm going to see if the trace DNA matches with what was in the hold. Yeah. So it's a kind of additional way of monitoring what they caught. So for someone who doesn't really know much about this space, would be what they're keeping in the hold be like what they intend to like sell? Like I'm not trying to catch snapper, even if I bring in some tuna while I'm out catching I don't even know that's possible so (laughs) (laughs) but I'm gonna I'm gonna put back all the things that I didn't want I'm only gonna put the snapper in the brine yeah is that like what you would expect in that situation yeah so so in Australia um (laughs) they're very good at doing this we have very sophisticated um fisheries that do get rid of their bycatch we have electronic monitoring so we really have a high capacity of enforcement and monitoring but if we go overseas think the Indian Ocean maybe Pakistan or India it's really about making money from whatever they can catch Mm -hmm. and so they might while they're out on a trip, run into a bunch of sharks and they'll go, okay, great, we're going to keep all those sharks. And then they'll run, like they're also trying to fish with basically for tuna, but they'll take sharks as bycatch because they can make money from that. And so then if they happen to run into a big school of tuna, they actually might end up throwing out all those sharks, even though they caught them and they're dead. They might end up throwing them out because they need the room on their boat. And so it's about, and, and that's really this kind of missing and unreported side to fisheries at a global scale Mm -hmm. and so we can't properly know if things are declining if we don't know those sorts of numbers that a whole bunch of sharks were caught and thrown out because on the log books they're probably going to scribble that out Mm -hmm. that they caught them right yeah and so this is an additional way to be able to scoop that water and go look I'm getting lots of tuna but I'm also getting a lot of sharks did you have sharks in here at some point in time and a similar way that transshipment that I was talking about before they might not report what they've transshipped off their ship Mm -hmm. so they might take a whole lot of stock give it to another ship to deal with and that might go unreported as well so there's this kind of there's a big level of fishing activity that we don't know about um, and it's important that we find ways to to sneakily and detective like you know try and figure out where's that missing fish and so the dna that that you're talking about 
that's called environmental DNA. Is that yeah, correct? so basically any trace DNA that has shed from an animal, um, and that, I mean, we shed eDNA all the time. Think about our hair, that's a form of eDNA. Um, but our skin cells, all sorts of stuff, um, and we can collect it from soil, from, I think they've started doing air eDNA, so they're trying to wow. filter the air. Um, and in the water, you can do the same thing. So we can, um, the best thing about water, though, is if it's cold, it kind of keeps the DNA at good quality. So it's much easier to um, collect eDNA from the water. Yeah. yeah. So you like, you don't just go out into the ocean and scoop up all the water. Like, can Some you people do, that? do yeah. yeah. So we have um, biodiversity monitoring. So that's understanding, you know, what animals are around. Um, and because eDNA, you know, only lasts for a short period of time, and that can be somewhere between hours to two weeks, we're unsure. But it means that you have a kind of signal of what is around. So um, it, is, it can be used from just general seawater. But mine's a bit more specific mm. and that makes it easier for me actually is because we have, you know, um, dead and processed fish in a big hold, which is like a big box that's just floating, you know, debris and material and eDNA. So often eDNA researchers struggle because they don't have enough good DNA. But my problem is that I actually have so much DNA that I need to counteract that in my methods. So does that mean that you can look at things like in actually quite a lot of detail with the types of DNA samples you're getting? Like can you know the species, how degraded the DNA was, which might indicate the age of the fish that was caught? Like can you look at all of that kind of stuff? And also do you have it for a longer timeline than like two weeks. Like if you take a sample, you can be like, "Yeah, there's tuna and shark in here, yeah. and the that's some that's you can backdate it to like a month or something." Yeah, I think there are some unique opportunities that working from a cold box mm. <laughs> on a boat um, allows me, and so I can certainly tell the species. That's sort of some data I'm going to get back soon. I know at the project right now, I know I've been able to extract fish DNA and I know the four because I'm validating it with good fisheries in Australia at the moment so mm -hmm. I can test um, and so I know that I've got good levels of fish DNA from the hold. Um, I know there were four species in my hold that I'm looking for and I think that I've likely captured those so I'll be able to do that moving into the future. Um, a big question is around abundance often so can I say how many of that individual species you know whether I could tell there's a difference between um, say big eye tuna or the amount of striped marlin that are mm -hmm. in the hold. For us the main goals are just to be able to get a species level data because often in um, and in international waters where countries share their fisheries, uh, they work in bodies that are called regional management fisheries organisations, RMFOs, um, and, and they all negotiate what they're going to catch and who gets what. Um, and some of the base level data for the bycatch from RMFOs are just aggregated. So we just have shark and that's a value of how many millions of ton, but we don't know what species they were. So, you know, it would be huge if this works just to do species alone. Yeah. 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 Awesome. So stick with us for part three as we hear more about Maddie's passion for biological research sampling. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. We're talking about environmental genetic data with our expert guest, Maddie Green. My name is Mibu Fisher and I'm also joined today by our main host, Neve Chapman. Um, so 
Maddie, we were just talking about eDNA and all the amazing things you can do with it. Yes. Um, but in addition to working with eDNA, you're also the co-founder of a collaborative platform for researchers working with biological samples. Um, do you want to give us a quick description of what that is and yeah. how you came up with the idea to yeah. start with? <laughs> <laughs> so my friend and I uh, created a database called Otlet uh, and it basically enables scientists, not just um, fishery scientists, but any uh, scientists that work with animals to share, source and request biological samples. Um, we generated this idea because it was when we were in our honours, so that's like 2014, so it was a few years ago now, and uh, Lauren, my co-founder, she really needed shark liver, which is a very specific type of sample from an animal, and it's an invasive one in the sense that the animal has to die in order for you to be able to get some of its liver. So it's it's a bit rough and, and, it, and it's a bit of a rare sample. And so Lauren couldn't find any shark liver for this study she needed to do, which was on toxins that sharks accumulate. And um, she ended up almost failing her honours because she just had samples and then not enough and, and it was all a bit of a shambles. And so she... Um, it was a few months later, uh, we went to a conference and we were just chatting with another shark researcher and she happened to mention, she goes, I've just got so much tiger shark liver in my freezer and I don't know what to do with it. Like maybe someone will need it one day. And Lauren just looked at me and we're like, how did we not know that she had all these samples? And then when we started digging deeper, I realised no one knows who has what samples. Even within an institution, we were like, this is a huge problem, but it's also an easy solution in the sense that if we can all be connected and if we could all understand who has what, we can share that because often we don't need to use all of the biological sample we collect or often because going out and interrogating an animal for science is an expensive process, you take more samples than you need in hope one day that someone will use them. But we've just not had a method to be able to talk about that so Lauren and I generated a database which was firstly for sharks so we called it shark share <laughs> 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 um, and then we ended up getting um, a, a Sydney-based um, venture fund was quite interested in us and so they um, gave us money as a company um, to incorporate and then we became Otlet, which is our much larger entity and is for all samples. It can be soil, it can be eDNA as well. So is it just like a researcher or anyone who's collecting samples can just put on there like yeah. craigslist yeah it is a gum tree for yeah. scientists <laughs> okay. so you have to be approved as a researcher because of the ethics around collecting samples yeah um and then if you once you're approved um then you can sort of share say what you have available um just like i'm selling a couch you know in gum tree mm. or you could say i'm looking for a couch um and so it works both ways people can say what they're looking for or what they're not and i think at the moment we probably have about 35,000 samples on there but oh, that changes great. all the time because mm -hmm. people are submitting and you know getting samples. Yeah. Did you want to tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind the name Otlet? Oh yeah um, Paul Otlay which I've I learned years after we called it Otlet. Uh, Paul Otlet is a, a Belgian um, scientist between sort of the late 1800s and the mid 1900s um, and he was just this 
incredible man that not many people know about. Um, and he came up with, you know, a system before the Dewey Decimal System, which was around categorising knowledge. And he was really interested in being able to make sure that people had access to knowledge. So he thought of what was the early idea of an internet as well. And he has wow. sketches of how you would share that information. And that's kind of the back end of how we use the World Wide Web now. So he's pretty incredible. And at one point he had... Um, in the Mondemayum, in this place where his office was, he had, um, I think it was like 2.3 million index cards of knowledge and people, similar to a Google search now, would write a letter in requesting information and he would send them back an index card full of information in the wow. <laughs> post. And so he, he truly believed that if people had access to knowledge, that would be quite powerful and and quite freeing for people and amazing and I guess Lauren and I look at biological samples as knowledge about that animal that's ready to be unlocked you know the the DNA for me once I can get a sequencer onto it I can understand so much more and so I guess we realized that um, samples are a little knowledge packets and we want to share knowledge just like Paul Utley did as well. So that's, that's so sweet. That is so <laughs> sweet. So when just to finish up, um, Maddie, it seems like sustainability and sustainable science is really important to you with the viewpoint that you're taking to your actual research, but then creating something as innovative as Outlet. Yeah. Where do you see your career going? Like, what do you hope to achieve? It's a big question. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm all about it lately being Let's like, what are you down. in the science yeah. game for? Yeah. <laughs> Asking scientists yeah. that lately. Just to finish us off, you know. Yeah. Do you know what? It's, it's a great question and it's one I've been struggling with. I think I got into science um, and probably the, it's the same reason always, but um, I got into science because I realised that the earth and mother nature doesn't really have its own voice. And so I imagined that in a way, if I understood it more, I could be the voice for or help be a voice. I'm not saying I'm the only voice, but... I can help be a voice for something that is quite voiceless. To be honest, um, I finished my PhD in 2019 and I went through, I guess, like a bit of a hard time um, in the sense that my, you know, I'd worked so hard. We'd, we'd created Odlet while doing our PhDs and running a company and doing your PhD is not something I would ever tell someone to do <laughs> and if I knew how much work it would be I would have never said yes but I, I basically at the end of 2019 I, I ended up being burnt out and I had to dig deep to find out why I do what I do and and was that important to me anymore and I became very cynical because I was a bit lost I was I've you know I thought no matter how much we try maybe it's not worth it and I think I've you know through going to doctors and getting a lot of help and, and really resting. Um, I've done a full circle and, and I'm feeling quite refreshed and inspired again. So I think I was just tired. but And I think the thing that I always come back to really is that, you know, for evil to prevail, good has to do nothing. It's like if you don't do anything about it, you're just being like, well, all of the bad things that are happening are fine yeah. because yeah. what have you done? I think your story is inspiring, so I'm glad that you're <laughs> feeling invigorated again and that you thank are well you. rested. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. We love bringing you science ready content here um, on That's What I Call Science. If you did like it, please get in touch with us on social media. You can find us whatever social media channel you prefer. So just search That's What I Call Science. Until next time, 
That's it from me, Neve Chapman. I'd like to thank my co-host, Mibu Fisher, and our expert guest, Maddie Green from CSIRO. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.